In 2 Peter chapter 3, um, John read the passage. It begins with this, this second epistle, beloved. I now write unto you, this is interesting giving it's chapter 3, right? This second epistle, beloved, I now write unto you, in both which I stir up your pure minds by way of remembrance, that ye may be mindful of the words which were spoken before by the holy prophets and of the commandment of us, the apostles of the Lord and Savior, knowing this first, that there shall come in the last days scoffers, walking after their own lusts, and saying, Where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of the creation. Let's pray. Our Father, help us as we look into thy word. Lord, help us to understand the answer to this question and to see what this looks like. Lord, may we not, uh, may we not focus on the age in which we live. May we not even focus on the people around us that we see you doing wonderful things in. But may we look away unto you, Lord Jesus, in all things. May we look away. Lord, we ask you that you would bless as we look into your word this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Why has he not come? The Lord Jesus came 2,000 years ago. He died for us. He was resurrected. He went into the Holy of Holies with that blood. And then he sent the Holy Ghost to come and live in our hearts. And the church became powerful, capable, not in her own strength, but by the power of the Holy Spirit that lived within the membership. And that's what God has continued to do. His Holy Word and His Holy Spirit working in the midst of a lost and dying world. He's still doing exactly what He was doing as we read in the book of Acts. Still doing that in local churches all over the world. But His promise was to come again. Why, why hasn't He come? Right, that's the question here. Why hasn't He come? Are you guys sure you got this right? This Lord Jesus? Why, why hasn't He come? And it says in verse 5, for this they willingly are ignorant of. What's interesting is, he's going to go back to the flood. Has anybody been to the Grand Canyon? Anybody been to the Grand Canyon? Raise your hand. You've been a good number of us. How many of you, by the way, when you went to the Grand Canyon, thought, wow? Raise your hand if you, that's what you thought, right? I mean, I've seen videos of it. I've seen photos of it. I was, you know, it's like, oh yeah, that's, that's pretty big. And then I stood at the edge of it and looked at it and thought, wow, you can't take a picture of this. You can't make a video of this. You can fly a drone down through it and you can, you know, take video of it. And they do, they've done that with helicopters for many years and sell videos of it. But once you go there, it's like, wow, oh, this is a, this is remarkable. And of course, there's a little river at the bottom of it. And they'll tell you that that little river over millions and millions of years carved all of this. You look at that little river and you think it wasn't that little when it did this. Couldn't have been. Couldn't have been. And of course, it's not what happened. What happened is a whole bunch of water that was stored up. You've done this. You've done this when you played at the ocean. 
rush through and cut a channel and cut that channel as it rushed through to go to the Pacific Ocean. It's incredible. It's magnificent. But when you go there and you listen to it, they are willingly ignorant of the flood. Willingly ignorant. And they are willingly ignorant of the time that we live today. The people around us are saying, we don't believe in this Christ that you talk to us about. Because if he was coming, why doesn't he come now? And, and you, you could just watch the news and say, surely now's a good time, right? How many of you believe now's a good time for Jesus to come, right? Amen, right? But it's not. It's not a good time. Do you, how, you want to know how I know it's not a good time for Jesus to come? Because if it was a good time, he'd come. Because you're not as smart as he is. But he tells us why. They don't understand the creation. They don't understand the flood. And they don't understand the time that is going on right now and why he hasn't come. So it says in verse 8, but beloved, right? The same beloved that we see in verse 1 of chapter 3, but beloved, be not ignorant of this one thing, that one day with the Lord is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. In other words, time is irrelevant to God. With God, a day and a thousand years, they're the same thing. To us, they're not the same thing because we don't live that long. To us, a day is one thing. A thousand years is, well, we don't know what a thousand years is because we barely live to be a hundred if we live to be a hundred. So we don't know. And I'm kind of glad we don't know what a thousand years is. I'm really thankful. I know I said this sometime last couple of weeks, but I'm really thankful that life is long enough to repent and be born again, but not so long as to have to stay here forever. Amen. I'm glad to be born again, and I'm glad I'm not staying here for another three, four hundred years. Truly glad. Looking forward to going, to departing and being with Christ, which is far better. By the way, um, I was over uh, with Pastor Asher. Mike Asher and I were having lunch together the other day, and he had lost a dear, sweet saint in his church, a, a, an elderly lady like we have in our church that had served for many, many years, and she'd gone to be with the Lord that morning. And you could tell, I mean... You can tell pastors, you talk to pastors when someone passes and it hurts our hearts. You know, we, you know, it just hurts our hearts because we know what the families are going through. But we're not weeping for the one that's gone. There's no reason to weep for her. She's walking and leaping and praising God. Amen. I don't know what her last, she, she, she had, has, this is how he worded it. She had wrestled with cancer since, and I remember he told me when. So she'd been in cancer for a period of time and now, praise God, she no longer has cancer. She has a new body. Amen. And now, how many of you would like a new body? Raise your hand if you like it. <laughs> Remember that group over 65? Everybody over that age, raise their hand. Why hasn't he come? But, beloved, be, be not ignorant. Verse 9 says, The Lord is not slack concerning his promise. See, it says in verse 4, Where is the promise of his coming? This is the same attack. Satan only has one attack. Do you know what Satan's only attack is? It's the only attack he has. Yep, yea hath God said. That's his only attack. Yea hath God said. It's the only attack he's got. To try to make you doubt what God has said. That's the only attack that he has. So he's always attacking what God says. Always attack and wanting to attack in your mind your understanding of what. He wants you to doubt how good God is. That's what he wants. He does not want you to trust God at his word. John said it in Sunday school class. I have no interest in standing up here this morning and entertaining you. Simply want to expose what the word of God says. You can receive that. You can reject that. You can do whatever you want to do with it. But I only have one purpose as a pastor, and that is to show you what the word of God says. That's it. That's it. I have nothing else to add. Uh, you know, the Lord has long ago, you know, kind of, what's the word? 
remove the three points in a poem, if you will, from my preaching and teaching. I no longer try to alliterate. I no longer try to be clever. I don't need to do any of those things. The Holy Spirit really convicted me. Chuck, those are my words. Just give them what I say. You will never improve upon the Word of God. You will never improve upon the Word of God. If you preach or teach or do Sunday school or go anywhere, the best you will ever do is expose what the Word of God actually says. That's the best that you can ever do. So God's not slack concerning his promise. Where is the promise of his coming? He's coming. How do we know he's coming? Because he promised to come. He's coming again, and he's going to come and get us, praise God. Some of us may live to see that. And I'm sure every generation feels this way. The imminent return of Christ is a truth. So every generation believes, well, it could be now. It could be today. It could be right now before we finish this message. Wait, let's wait. Well, it wasn't right then, okay? But it could be at any moment. He could come and take us all home. And I, and I truly am, it's not that I don't like being here with you, but I do not want to be here any longer than I need to be here. Brother Kenny said, when he's done with us here, you know, there's, there's a thing, we are, we are invincible. You can't kill us until our time is done, right? Nobody can take you out of this world but God. It is appointed unto men once to die. You have an appointment, and you will keep that appointment. All of us are appointed to leave the earth at some point. And I'm glad that we're going to leave the earth at some point. But why hasn't he come to get all of us? And he tells us why. Because he's long-suffering. That's what it says, right, in verse 9. He's not slack. He's not slack. He's not dragging his feet. He's not lazy. He doesn't, it's not that he doesn't know what he's doing. He's long-suffering. He looks down and he listens to the House and the Senate. And he listens to the media here in the United States of America. And he says, there's souls to be saved still. My children will have to endure the corruption that's going on around them. The wickedness that's going on in the United States of America is nothing like the wickedness that was going on in Rome. Nothing like what the early church was having to endure. And it wasn't that he didn't love the early church and would love to have taken them home, but he had them ministering to people who needed to know that Jesus wanted to save them. That's what they were. That's why we're here. That's why we're here. Again, when you wake up in the morning, when you woke up this morning, God intends for you to be a witness unto Christ. God intends for you to show someone how great Jesus is. Today, it is God's desire for each and every one of us. The Holy Spirit lives within us to empower us, the dynamite, the dunamis power of God, to be able to show forth God's changing power in our lives. Yes? Not just talk about it. Too much talk. Not enough letting God change us. Nobody at work needs to hear your political opinion. Nobody at work needs to know what you think about this and what you think about that. What the people at work need to see is how Jesus can change a life. So if you're born again, let him change your life. Let him conform you to his image. Amen? Which is what he wants to do. Don't pretend. Don't be religious. Let God change you. Let them see the difference. When they see the difference, when it's dark and hard in their life, when they lose a loved one or something tragic goes on, I promise, if you're walking with Jesus, they'll come talk to you about it. Because then they'll need him. Because God is not slack. He's long-suffering. So you stop being slack and just be long-suffering. Understand this. That's what he's saying here. Notice why he's long-suffering. Long-suffering toward usward. Not willing, praise God, listen to this, not willing that any 
should perish, but that all should come unto repentance. Put a circle around the word any. Put a circle around the word all. Any is an absolute. Do you understand that? Any. Any is an absolute. Do you understand what I mean when I say absolute? Right? It's all-inclusive. There are absolutes. I, I did it the other day, or my wife did it the other day. One of us did it the other day. We're having a discussion. And one of us used the word all. I think I did. Or always. I try not to do that anymore. It usually goes like this. You always do that. And that's not true. My, you know, my wife will say to me, you always do that. And I'll say, honey, I got lots of failures. That's not the only one I've got. Amen? So I don't always do that. Sometimes I do this instead. You understand? We need to stop using absolutes incorrectly. Because, listen, it's important. Because God does not use absolutes incorrectly. See, when you exaggerate by using an absolute in a situation where it's not absolutely true, you damage what God says. Because when you say, when I say to my wife, you always burn the toast. She doesn't actually burn the toast, so, right? You always burn the toast. It's like, no, not always. Sometimes the toast is just right, right? But what God says here is, he's not willing that how many should perish? Now, I want you to think about this with me. How many people does God want to perish? And the answer is none. He's not willing that any should perish, but what does he want instead? That all should come unto repentance. How many does he want to repent? How many people, there are seven plus billion people on the planet today, how many of them does God want to come unto repentance? And the answer is how many? All of them. All of them. What is God's heart? To save everybody. To save everybody. We don't have time. I'd like to go back. I'd really like to go back and... When you go visit the ark, if you get a chance to go up and do the ark encounter and you see the ark, what you need to understand is the size of that ark. That ark is, is supposed to be the size that the ark was at the flood. That ark, the ark that actually went through the flood, was somewhere between 30 and 50% empty. Right? Somewhere between 30 and 50% empty. Why? Now they built this by hand, right? Why build something that was going to be 30 to 50% empty when it was time to use it? And the answer is because there was room for everybody on the planet to get inside. See, when Jesus says there's room at the cross for you, he means it. Right? Who can be saved? Everybody. Why? Because the blood is enough for everybody. Because the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Who? Everybody. Everybody. When Jesus died on the cross and he said it is finished, he died for everybody. Those that are going to go to hell are going to go to hell because they are not going to receive the payment that Jesus made for them on their behalf, loving them, paying for their sins. He paid for your sins. Receive that. God wants everybody to come to repentance. This isn't even the message. It really isn't. The message is in Luke 19. Turn to Luke 19. I want you to see in Luke 19, you say, what happened to, to 2 John? Come back next week and you'll find out. This is in Luke 19. When you turn to Luke 19, I'm going to read a couple of passages. In 1 Timothy 1.15, we read, This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation. That Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am chief. Amen? So with that in mind, let's go look at God saving a sinner. Let's go look at God saving a sinner. Let's see what this looks like, that God is not willing that any should perish. Let's go look. Luke chapter 19, verse 1. 
Luke chapter 19, verse 1. And, and Jesus entered and passed through Jericho. And behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus, who was the chief among the publicans. He was rich. How many of you, when, I, when, we, when you read this and recognized, oh, Zacchaeus, I know Zacchaeus. How many of you, your first thought was he was a wee little man? A wee little man was he. All right, somebody in Sunday school did a good job in your life, amen? But Zacchaeus wasn't just, he was a wee little man, but he wasn't just a wee little man. He was chief among the publicans, and he was rich. Now, this is important. This man has great authority and great wealth. And he sought to see Jesus, who he was, and could not for the press, because he was a wee little man, because he was little in stature. So he wants to see Jesus, and the crowds are big, and he's not big enough to push through the crowd. He's rich, and he's important, but he, that won't get him to Jesus. You understand? That's important, right? Rich and important, rich and important won't get you through to Jesus. Jesus doesn't care how much money you got. He doesn't, care how many, he doesn't care how many people think you're a big shot. God is not an acceptor of persons. God does not accept anybody's person. You know, the Bible's very clear. The early churches warned, when people visit your church and you find out that they're wealthy, don't give them a special place to sit. Let everybody sit together. I was over preaching at a, I was over preaching at a conference in, in um, the Philippines. And there was a... 1,200, 1,200, 1,400 people at this conference. And um, the, before, before we even started the conference, I was speaking every night for, for, I don't know how long, a week. Bobby McKinney was with us, was with me. We, we were there together. And he was singing. He was playing. He played his guitar and sang what a tremendous blessing it was. Anyway, the first night, before the first message, there was a meal, a large meal. Everybody, they fed everybody. They had a gym, huge gymnasium. But they had a place where they set, they had another table, long table, where they set the 20-something people that were the guests with different food. And I walked into the room, and I saw the table. It was a big table, and I saw the food. I was like, oh, wow, this looks awesome. And then I noticed that there was a glass, long glass window, and out there, there were 1,000 people sitting at tables. And I said, uh, are we not eating out there with them? And the person who was hosting said, oh, no, no, you're eating in here with us. We're sitting in here together, and we have different food than they do. And I said, no, no, we don't. I said, or I'm about to be a hypocrite when I preach. And I said, I'm going to go out there and sit. And they said, well, we'll bring you some food. I said, no, don't bring me any food. I'm just going to eat whatever they're eating out there. Because that's how God is. Do you understand? I hate head tables. There are no head tables. Do you understand that? Don't, don't, don't think, you know, well, I'm blah, blah, blah. You're nothing. You're a sinner saved by grace. It's all any of us are. Zacchaeus was a rich publican. Didn't get him through to Jesus. So he ran. He, this is what he did. He did a little bit of math. All right, Jesus is walking this way, and he looked down, and he saw a tree. He ran before and climbed up into a sycamore tree. You knew that from the song. Climbed up into a sycamore tree. So that he could see Jesus. For he was to pass that way. He figured out the path. Said, I'm going to get down the path a little bit because it's going to take me a little bit. I don't climb trees all day, you know. I'm a rich publican. I don't do a lot of tree climbing. But I'm climbing a tree today. So he went down there. He got ahead. He got up in the tree so that he could see Jesus. 
And when Jesus came to the place, <laughs> I just want you to picture this in your mind. When he came to the place as he's walking down the street, it says, when he came to the place, walking down the street, he looked up and saw him and said unto him, by name, Zacchaeus, make haste and come down. For today I must abide at thy house. And he made haste and came down and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, who's they? The people that were in the crowd that wouldn't let him through to see Jesus. And when they saw it, they all murmured. How many of them murmured? All of them. Because they knew him. Because he's the chief publican. He's the guy that takes all their money. They saw him. And they said, murmured, said, he, Jesus, was gone to be the guest with a man that is a, what? Sinner. Well, that's okay, because Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. He is going to go eat with a sinner, because everybody that Jesus ever ate with was a sinner. Everybody that Jesus has ever saved is a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood, and he said unto the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have taken anything from any man by false accusation, which he had, I restore him fourfold, which is pretty significant. And Jesus said unto him, This day is salvation come to this house. For as much as he also, meaning he's saying, I want you to notice he says he also. He's making reference to Zacchaeus. He even says he's speaking to Zacchaeus, but he's saying he because he wants the people that heard that were murmuring to understand that Zacchaeus is the son of Abraham. For he also is the son of Abraham. By the way, who are the sons of Abraham? And the answer is those that live by faith are the sons of Abraham. Not those that are Israelites are sons of Abraham, but those that live by faith are the sons of Abraham. That's a different message this morning, but it's important that you understand that. This is not because he's Hebrew. It's because he's trusting Christ. Now listen to this, and this is really why I brought you here. This is the whole point. This is the burden of my heart. For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. Amen? In Acts chapter 20, verse, 25, verse 21, speaking of the gospel, and just don't turn it because we're going to come right back. Testifying both to the Jew and also to the Greeks, repentance toward God and faith towards our Lord Jesus Christ. What does it take to be saved? And the answer is repentance and faith. That's all it takes to be faith. You listen. What does repentance mean? Repentance means to change your heart and mind. This is what repentance is: to acknowledge you're wrong. Anybody here ever been wrong? Raise your hand if you've ever been wrong. If you didn't just raise your hand, you can raise it now because you were wrong when you didn't raise your hand. We've all been wrong. We are all, we are, there is none good. No, not one. There is none that seeketh after God. No, you say, well, Zacchaeus is seeking after God right here. No, no, God is seeking after Zacchaeus right here. Amen? Here's what I want you to notice. It says, for the Son of Man is come to seek and to save that which was lost. It doesn't say, for the Son of God or Son of Man, is come to be found. It's not what it says. It says it's, he's come to seek and to save that which is lost. Somebody, somebody just said it recently. I think Andrew, the young man, he's got, he's got duty today. He just started visiting our church. And somehow he said we were talking about something, and he made reference to the fact that 
someone who he was talking to the other day said uh, that they had found Jesus. And he said, and I, he said, and I thought, that's funny because I don't think Jesus has ever been lost. And I said, exactly, right? Listen, you don't find Jesus. Jesus finds you. You understand? Jesus is not lost. You are. Right? But here's the good news. Jesus is looking to save you. Isn't that wonderful? He's come to seek and then to rescue that which was lost. Is, does Nicodemus fit into that? Yes. Look, Nicodemus is lost. And so what did Jesus come to do? Rescue him. He came to seek and to save him. Now, I want you to notice, I want you to go back one verse to verse 9. It says, this day is salvation come to this age. Not will it come. Not if you keep doing the right things, it's going to come. This day is salvation come to this house. What I want you to recognize is this. The acts of Zacchaeus are the acts of someone that Jesus is already saving. Zacchaeus is climbing a tree because Jesus is saving Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus turns around in front of the entire crowd and says to the Lord Jesus, I'm going to give half of what I owe, own, half of what I own, I'm going to give to the poor. Not to earn salvation, but because salvation has come to his house. This is repentance and faith. Notice how he speaks to him. Go back to verse 8. And Zacchaeus stood and said unto the Lord, Kyrios, right? This is the Lord, the real Lord, the Lord of lords. And notice what he says to him. Behold what? Not master, not sir, not rabbi, not teacher, Lord. Lord. I'm chief of the public. I'm really important, and I'm rich, but you're Lord. But I'm not Lord. You're Lord. And Lord. By the way, he doesn't turn to the crowd. By the way, he heard them say, Jesus is going to go eat with this publican. He heard them say that. And he doesn't turn to them and say, it's okay, it's okay, it's okay. Listen, I'm going to repent. I'm going to give half of my wealth to the poor. And if I've stolen anything from any of you, I'll restore you fourfold. He does say that so that they can hear it, but he doesn't say it to them. He says it to the only one that matters. Lord, Lord, I am wrong. I have been wrong. And I have got money that I shouldn't have. And half of what I got... I'm going to give to the poor. And what's left, if I've ever taken anything that I shouldn't take, I'm going to restore them fourfold. Because I'm wrong. Not so that you will save me, but because you are saving me. Because you are changing my heart. Notice, what God, notice the Lord Jesus' response to him. It's immediate response, right? Right after this fourfold, this day is salvation come to this house. Why is salvation come to this house? Because Jesus Christ came to save sinners. He came to save those that are lost. If you're lost, Jesus wants to save you. Listen to me. If you go to church, it doesn't mean you're not lost. If you've come down an aisle at some point in your life and cried and said a sinner's prayer, that doesn't mean you're not lost. If you're not born again, you're lost. If you're not a new creature, you're lost. If your faith is in your church or your pastor or your mother or your prayer or anything you've ever done, you're lost. If your faith is in Christ which is what Zacchaeus is doing, then you're a new creature. Then you're born again. Then you have salvation, biblical salvation. I want you to turn to Luke chapter 3 with me. Luke chapter 3. You're in Luke chapter 19. Turn back to Luke chapter 3. We're almost done. Luke chapter 3. 
John the Baptist is baptizing out in the wilderness. And in verse uh, 7, notice what he says. Listen to verse 7. Whole bunch of whole bunch of uh, religious people have come out. Whole bunch of the leaders of the religious people have come out. And this is what John the Baptist says to them. Then said he, John the Baptist, to the multitude that came forth to be baptized of him. Listen to this. Listen to how he words it. O generation of vipers, who hath warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bring forth, therefore, fruits worthy of repentance. And begin not to say within yourselves, we have Abraham to our father. For I say unto you that God is able of these stones to raise up children unto Abraham. Wow. Wow. They came to be baptized. Preacher, can I be baptized? Are you born again? Won't I be when I'm baptized? No. No. You need to be a new creature. You need to be born again. Then we'll baptize you. Baptism has nothing to do with your salvation. It's an act of obedience, and you should be baptized. If you won't be baptized, it makes me nervous. If you won't be baptized, it makes me nervous. But <laughs> somebody's pen just went right in the middle of the aisle. And um, you, uh, when the Holy Spirit addresses it in your heart, you will be baptized. If you're a new creature, you will be baptized. But it doesn't save you. Baptism is a picture of what God has already done. I died in Christ, and now I'm a new creature. Praise God. It demonstrates a public testimony of what's taken place in your life. I am a new creature, and I want the whole world to know what Jesus has done. It's a public testimony. Now, again, we do it in a private place. We might be better off doing it in a public place. I don't know how many people would get baptized if they had to do it out in front of everybody, though. But it's important that you would be able to do it in front of that you'd be willing to do it out in front of everybody. It's important that you're going to want to walk out in front of everybody and talk about how wonderful the Lord Jesus is. Notice what he says here. Bring forth fruits worthy of repentance. In other words, please don't come and have a religious act and think that demonstrates that something has changed. If you're a new creature, guess what? You'll be a new creature. If you're really born again, people will see the difference in your life. That's what happens. That's what happens. All you have to do, Nicodemus, does Nicodemus have the testimony of someone who is really being saved? And the answer is, he does. He has the testimony of somebody that's really being saved. What I mean by this is this. He repents. I was wrong, and I'm, going to, and I'm going to live differently from now on. But not so that I can be saved, but because, Lord, you've come to save me. Amen? And Jesus testifies, Nicodemus, this day salvation has come to this house, for as much as he also is the son of Abraham. For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. Everything that's happening in Nicodemus' life, Jesus is the author of. Right? Jesus is the author and finisher of your, if you're born again, your faith. He's the one that starts it. He's the one that needs to finish it. It's really, it's very, very simple. But I wanted you to see what God is doing. Why are we here? Why has he not come? And the answer is because there are people who are going to be saved still. We know that. When will it be over? And the answer is when no one's going to receive him anymore, he's going to come and get us and take us home. All of us, right? Some of us, as Kenny said, some of us may leave earlier. When, when our work is done, we will get to leave. But when the last one has said yes to the Lord Jesus Christ in the age that we're living here in the church age, he's going to come and get all of us, right? That's the promise, right? But he's not slack concerning the promise. He's long-suffering concerning the promise. He's waiting for people that you love to say yes to him. That's what he's doing. So guess what? 
Let's be about telling them about his love. Let our lives be in such a way that they can see the difference in our lives and have someone they can come and say, I need your Jesus. And you can say, well, my Jesus wants to save you just like my Jesus saved me. Stand with me if you would. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for showing us just how simple it is that you, that you have come to seek and to save that which was lost. That you are the one doing this work. And we see how it looks in Zacchaeus' life. And here he is humbling himself and climbing a tree. What a remarkable thing, Lord, that you can bring this chief of the publicans and rich man to a place where he's willing to climb a tree just to see you, just to get a glimpse of you. And we thank you that you never, ever reject a humble heart. And in his humility, as he has come to climb this tree, you looked up and said, Zacchaeus, come down. Come down. Come, come here. Be with me. We're going to go to your house together. I'm bringing salvation today to your house. Thank you for this, Lord Jesus. Thank you for this beautiful picture. And Lord, we thank you for your love to us. We praise you and we give you all the glory. In Jesus' name, amen.